So I thought I'd offer um, some reflections on equanimity, which is one of the major components of the Dharma. It shows up in a number of places, including the Brahma-viharas. But as I listened to people today and thought about my own unfolding of my practice over the last couple of years, I thought it would be useful. Um, I fully uh, uh, practice and engage with all of the Brahma-viharas, but um, had mainly uh, focused on loving-kindness and compassion, or metta and karuna. And then in 2016, I found that that was not enough for me in terms of negotiating the world we were living in. Um, Mainly, I don't know if uh, you all are holding the timeline, but 2016 was the year that included um, one of the many mass shootings that's happened in this country as well as it seemed every other month a young black male was being shot down. And somehow my ability or capacity to engage loving kindness and compassion started to wane. So I started to look for or look within the practice in terms of what could support me in continuing to engage with the world and my well-being to be handled. And... Um, what, it, what occurred was that I needed to pick up or take up um, intentionally and with consistency equanimity practice so that I was able to maintain or retain balance and not be battered around by the seemingly onslaught consistent um, terrorism that was going on in this country. So I'll offer a few words about uh, equanimity. From the Dhammapada, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires, touched by happiness and then by suffering. The sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions of Buddhist practice. It is the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love. While some may think of equanimity as dry neutrality or cool aloofness, mature equanimity produces a radiance and warmth of being. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without (coughs) ill will. So firstly, the uh, 
energetic quality of equanimity is grounded in the four heavenly abodes, the sublime states of mind, or the Brahma Viharas, as you've been he hearing about a bit off and on. These four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or wise or ideal way of conduct towards living beings. They provide a context to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human brotherhood against the forces of egotism. The Brahma-Viharas are incompatible with a hating state of mind. They are called abodes, Vihara, because through practice they become the mind's constant dwelling place where we feel at home. They hopefully will not remain merely places of rare and short visits, soon forgotten. In other words, our minds should become thoroughly saturated by them. They can become our inseparable companions and we can be mindful of them in all our common activities. As the Metta Sutta or the Song of Loving Kindness says, when standing, walking, sitting, lying down, whenever one feels free of tiredness, let them establish well this mindfulness. This, it is said, is the divine abode. Metta, loving kindness, Karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, equanimity, upeka. They should be non-exclusive and impartial, not bound by selective preferences or prejudices. A mind that has attained the boundlessness as the Brahma-Viharas will not harbor any national, racial, religious, gender, or class violence, or hatred. Until we are practiced to the degree where we are abiding in the heart naturally with that mental attitude, it will not be easy for us to affect that boundless application by a deliberate effort of will and to avoid consistently any kind or degree of partiality. To achieve that, in most cases, we shall have to use these four qualities not only as principles of conduct and objects of reflection, but also as subjects of methodical meditation. The meditation is called Brahma-Vihara, the meditative development of the sublime states. The practical aim is to achieve, with the help of these sublime states, those high stages of mental concentration or meditative absorption that we've been working with to some degree 
over the course of our time together. Generally speaking, persistent meditative practice will have two effects. First, it will allow these four qualities to sink deep into the heart so that they become spontaneous attitudes which are not overly thrown easily. Second, it will bring out and secure their boundless extension, the unfolding of their all-embracing range. The ultimate aim of attaining these Brahma-Vihara concentrated states is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for the liberating insight into the true nature of all phenomena as being impermanent, liable to suffering, and unsubstantial. A mind that has achieved meditative absorption induced by the sublime states will be pure, tranquil, firm, collected, and free of selflessness. Methodical meditative practice will help love, compassion, joy, and equanimity to become spontaneous. It will help make the mind firmer and calmer in withstanding the numerous irritations in life that challenge us to maintain these four qualities in thoughts, words, and deeds. In addition, when one's conduct is increasingly governed by these sublime states, the mind will harbor less resentment, tension, and irritability. Our everyday life and thought has a strong influence on the meditative mind. It is only if the gap between them is persistently and consistently narrowed that there will be a chance for steady meditative deepening and growth leading towards freedom. Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, meditative development of the sublime states will be aided by repeated reflection upon their qualities, the benefits they bestow and the dangers from their opposites as the Buddha says. What a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and incline. Ella Wilcox. It is easy enough to be pleasant when life flows along like a song, but the person worthwhile is the person who can smile when everything goes dead wrong. So once again, going to the dictionary, I looked up equanimity. Evenness of mind, especially under stress. Balance, right disposition. Both equanimity and equal are derived from equus, a Latin adjective meaning level or equal. Equanimity comes from the combination of equus and animus, which is soul or mind. In the Latin phrase, equo animo, which means even mind. Some synonyms for equanimity in terms of clarity or other ways of understanding that energy are composure, serenity, tranquility, calm, patience, peace, poise, 
steadiness, presence of mind. Somewhere in all of that, there must be something that speaks to you. Equanimity, when the mind is unperturbed by whatever experience is arising. Equanimity refers to a balance in the mind called neutrality of mind. Literally, Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of our current day monastic fabulous teachers, if you haven't heard of him, someone to read and listen to, look to for teaching. Bhikkhu Bodhi translated it as there in the middleness between extremes. That's how he defined equanimity. This quality of equanimity this quality of evenness speaks to how it functions. When this middleness is cultivated, it brings about an unshakable quality of mind. There is tremendous strength in that. Equanimity as a divine abode, as a Brahma-Vihara. It is impartiality, equanimity's ability to hold all equally. It gives the other Brahma-Viharas their boundless capacity. One of the other ways that I kind of think about equanimity and balance, which was taught to me by uh, one of my teachers, Gina Sharp, who some of you may have heard of, um, speaks of equanimity as balance. And for those of us um, of the age where we remember the playgrounds used to have seesaws, I don't know, I don't think they still do, but... Um, if you remember being on a seesaw and yet your friend would be on the other end and rather than doing the seesaw thing, um, part of the play was to see if you could balance it. And what it took to balance it wasn't that you landed one place and you stayed there. It was a constant moving back and forward, your leg maybe, on, you know, there was a lot of um, sometimes minute but movement and flow in maintaining balance and equanimity. So that's one of the ways that I think about equanimity, that it's equanimity. It's not a place we land that then sustains itself, that there's effort and attention that's needed in terms of continually reinforcing and sourcing this quality of balance. The four sublime states pervade and suffuse each other. Unbounded love, metta, guards compassion, karuna, against turning into partiality, prevents it from making discriminations by selecting and excluding, and thus protects it from falling into partiality or aversion against the excluded side. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor, too, transformed and controlled, is part of perfect equanimity, strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from forgetting that while both are enjoying or giving temporary and limited happiness, there still exists at that time most dreadful states of suffering in the world. It reminds them that their happiness coexists with measureless misery, perhaps at the next doorstep. It is a reminder to love and sympathetic joy that there is more suffering in the world 
than they are able to mitigate. That after the effect of such mitigation has vanished, sorrow and pain are sure to arise anew until suffering is uprooted entirely at the attainment of freedom. Compassion does not allow that love and sympathetic joy shut themselves up against the wide world by confining themselves to a narrow sector of it. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from turning into states of self-satisfied complacency within a jealousy-guarded, petty happiness. Compassion stirs and urges love to widen its sphere. It stirs and urges sympathetic joy to search for fresh nourishment. Thus, it helps both of them to grow into truly boundless states. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, Compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the test by hardening and strengthening itself. Sympathetic joy holds compassion back from becoming overwhelmed by the sight of the world's suffering, from being absorbed by it to the exclusion of everything else. Sympathetic joy relieves the tension of mind, soothes the painful burning of the compassionate heart. It keeps compassion away from melancholic brooding without purpose, from a futile sentimentality that merely weakens and consumes the strength of mind and heart. Sympathetic joy develops compassion into active sympathy. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Wide open are the doors to deliverance, thus the Buddha speaks. Equanimity, rooted in insight, is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity, being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal, does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. Equanimity, even-mindedness, gives to love an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness 
enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice. For those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. I think that's a serious sentence. The difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience. The patient devotion to the work of compassion. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. But in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity is not dull, is not heartless, nor frigid. Its perfection is not due to an emotional emptiness, but to a fullness, a fullness of understanding, to its being complete in itself. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. The mind infused with equanimity is unshakable because it is immutable. It is immutable because it clings to nothing. Says the Master, or the Buddha, for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This, verily, is the end of suffering. And that's from the Udana Suttas. Equanimity, or even of mind, when things are going well, there is no wild elation. When things are not going well, no depression. Equanimity is an impartiality towards all phenomena, treating all phenomena equally. Just as the sun shines on the earth, the sun does not choose to shine upon some things and not upon others. It shines upon all things equally, even when there's clouds. Mm -hmm. This factor of equanimity is acceptance and receptivity towards all objects. Equanimity as a quality of balance. So equanimity is also spoken about um, in the seven factors of enlightenment, which is the path towards freedom. There are three arousing, three calming, and mindfulness is neutral as one of the seven factors. So neutral mindfulness, arousing factors, investigation, 
energy and rapture. Calming factors, calm or tranquility, concentration or equanimity. So we've been moving around and about engaging some of these factors of enlightenment, um, not all of them um, intentionally. Eight worldly dhammas or conditions. You've been hearing about this too. These conditions are inconstant and impermanent. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, or known as status and disgrace. And basically we live our lives bouncing back and forth between these states these conditions um, without knowing that's what's going on. And so thus, aversion and greed arise because we're either averse <laughs> to the loss, pain, blame, and disrepute, or we're trying to hold on to the gain, pleasure, praise, and fame. So it is something to be aware of. And this is where equanimity can be useful. Each of us is touched by the eight worldly vicissitudes the factors of the endlessly changing conditions of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. When we cultivate and develop equanimity, we can move through the waves of these vicissitudes with balance and ease. When we remain unmoved in the face of those who praise and blame, we remain able to seek the welfare of both. Equanimity as a wisdom aspect, the experience of meditative awareness. It is said that the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, the way is clear and undisguised. Non-preferential awareness supports understanding and insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, dukkha, and the truth of selflessness. We started talking about that a little bit today in response to some of the questions that came about. Equanimity as a power me or the ten perfections, the ten qualities leading to Buddhahood. Generosity, of which uh, Julie spoke about today. Morality or sila, of which we engaged with at the beginning of the retreat when we took the precepts. Renunciation, you all have been engaged in renunciation in terms of being in silence, most of you probably limiting or putting away altogether your technology. Uh, wisdom, the result of the practice. You all have had insights, whether big or small, that have led to some understanding that will stay with you, which is the cultivation of wisdom. Energy, you all have been engaged with energy over the, how much energy to exert, how little energy, how to raise the energy, um, how to Moderate the energy if it's too much. I don't know how well you've been doing. I've been saying it a lot, but patience. Uh, that's one of the paramis. Truthfulness. You know, being, being
being true to yourself, to the practice, to others. Resolve or determination, and I know that there were points in the weekend where it took a lot of resolve to keep going, to keep moving forward, to go out and do that next walk, to come and do that next sit. Very integral to moving us forward on the path. Loving kindness, which we've touched in a little bit, and we actually uh, did some guided meditation around loving kindness, and you've heard more about it just now. And ten, equanimity, or upekka. Patience and equanimity are considered the mainstays of support for the development and practice of all the other paramis. Only when we have set ourselves up with patience and equanimity, if we are patient and we develop this quality of impartiality, all the rest will follow. How to strengthen equanimity. Forego attachment. Do whatever you do with full commitment, but the outcome is beyond your control. When we act without attachment to the outcome, we allow our minds to remain peaceful and undisturbed no matter how things unfold. Associate with wise and equanimous people. Practice it as a Brahma-Vihara. Practice wise attention and continuous mindfulness. i kind of been really <laughs> on that one. That's because, to me, that's one of the most integral ones to practice, especially taking practice into everyday life. In our meditation practice, we practice inclining the mind towards equanimity and not being seduced by the pull of pleasant feelings. We cultivate a balanced mind, having an impartiality that embraces all. There is no higher happiness than peace. The Buddha and the experience of equanimity give us a taste of this peace. That's actually something to maybe contemplate or do a little bit of thinking about. Because I think a lot of times people um, interpret that this path will get you to a place of happiness. But happiness comes and goes. It's impermanent, just like all the rest of the emotions. Whereas this um, uh, sublime state of peace in the face of whatever is um, engaging one, whether it be difficulty and stress or whether it be uh, joy and happiness, is actually um, attainable and um, dependable and um, not impermanent. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. Looking at the world around us and looking into our own heart, we can see clearly how difficult it is to attain and maintain balance of mind. Joseph Goldstein says, looking into life, we notice how it continually moves between contrasts, rise and fall, success and failure, loss and gain, honor and blame. We feel how our heart responds to all this with happiness and sorrow, 
delight and despair, disappointment and satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and fling us down. And no sooner than we find rest, than we are in the power of a new wave again. How can we expect to get a footing on the crest of the waves? How can we erect the building of our lives in the midst of this ever restless ocean of existence? If not on the island of equanimity. The kind of equanimity required is based on vigilant presence of mind and not on indifferent dullness. It is the result of intentional, deliberate training, not the casual outcome of a passing mood or a should or this will get me somewhere if I do this practice. Equanimity would not deserve its name if it had to be produced by exertion again and again. If that was the case, it would surely be weakened and finally defeated by the vicissitudes of life. True equanimity, however, is able to meet all these severe tests and to regenerate its strength from sources within. It will possess this power of resistance and self-renewal only if it is rooted in insight. You've heard that now about three or four times. What is the nature of that insight? It is the clear understanding of how all these vicissitudes of life originate and of our own true nature. We have to understand that the various experiences we undergo result from our cause and effect, from our karma, our actions and thought, word and deed performed in this life and depending on your belief system in earlier lives. Kama is the womb from which we spring and whether we like it or not we are the inalienable owners of our deeds. But as soon as we have performed any action our control over it is lost. It forever remains with us and inevitably returns to us as our due heritage. Nothing that happens to us comes from an outer hostile world far into ourselves. Everything is the outcome of our own mind and deeds. So one of the distinctions that um, I'd like to make in terms of karma is that um, uh, my understanding of it and how I find it useful to think about it is certainly not that things don't happen to us which we don't bring to us. Sometimes things happen to us that we don't bring to ourselves. That's not the result of some action that we took. We're either born into the wrong family, we're um, in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's, there's lots of kind of um, opportunities and, 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 and space where we're not the creator of the condition or circumstance. But where the concept of cause and effect and comma comes in for me, is it's how we respond to those situations, those circumstances, those conditions, those people, that history, um, that create the suffering for us. And so when we're, you know, I'm thinking about trauma, you know, my other, my other life is that, as, as, is that of a therapist. And when I'm thinking about 
particularly childhood trauma, when children don't have the cognitive um, integration and orientation to understand um, the trouble um, from a place where there's separation from that trouble. That's where a lot of the vicissitudes of our suffering in adulthood originate. Um, and even for adults who don't have this uh, good fortune of coming upon this path or any other spiritual tradition where um, there is a reorganization of one's mind in terms of how one thinks about difficulty and challenge um, can be caught in this web of cause and effect where they're making choices and taking actions based on um, uh, misunderstanding, which then creates more situations and conditions, and it kind of comes, becomes this self-perpetuating circumstance. Because this knowledge frees us from fear, it is the first basis of equanimity. When in everything that befalls us, we only meet ourselves, why should we fear? All the various events of our lives, many but not all being the result of our deeds, will also be our teachers, even if they bring us sorrow and pain. If we learn to see these things from this angle and to read the message conveyed by our own experience, then suffering too will be our teacher and ally. It will be a stern ally, but a truthful and well-meaning one who teaches us the most difficult subject, knowledge about ourselves, and warns us against the abyss towards which we are moving blindly. By looking at suffering as our teacher and friend, we shall better succeed in enduring it with equanimity. Disgust will arise at our own craving, at our own delusion, at our own propensity to create situations which try our strength, our resistance, and our equanimity. The second insight on which equanimity can be based is the Buddhist teaching of no self or not self or anatta. To establish equanimity as an unshakable state of mind, one has to give up all possessive thoughts of mind, beginning with little things from which it is easy to detach oneself and gradually working up to possessions and aims to which one's whole heart clings. One also has to give up the counterpart to such thoughts, all egoistic thoughts of self, beginning with a small section of one's personality, with qualities of minor importance, with small weaknesses one clearly sees, and gradually working up to those emotions and aversions which one regards as the center of one's being. In this way, detachment should be practiced. To the degree we forsake thoughts of mind or self, Equanimity will enter our hearts. For how can anything we realize to be foreign and void of a self cause us agitation due to greed, hatred, or aversion? Thus, the teaching of not-self will be our guide on the path to deliverance to perfect equanimity. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states but this should not be understood to me that equanimity is the negation of love, 
compassion and sympathetic joy or that it leaves them behind us as inferior. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully just as they fully pervade perfect equanimity. Ajahn Chah, um, who I, I think you all are having Ajahn Suchito come for, fabulous. If you can be here, be here. One, the opportunity to sit with a monastic and a monastic, Ajahn Suchito's been a monastic for 30, at least 30 years, maybe more than that. Um, and that's the lineage of Ajahn Chah coming down. Um, I think you all, well, some of you I've mentioned to Nissa and Kittisaro, they're also from that lineage, but really um, urge you to, to take part in that if you can. So Ajahn Chah talks about being Dharma beyond cause and effect. Freedom, it is said by the Buddha, is to be beyond becoming and birth. Speaking of entering the stream to nirvana, there, if there is genuine knowing within you, there is no one desiring anything. Further freedom is not a matter of wanting. It is not something you can desire. The Dharma is not something you can explain or give. It is something to be known within yourself. You have to have the realization in your own mind you need to practice and realize. Then the marvelous will arise and be known by your own mind. There is a story in the scriptures of people asking the Buddha about Nibbana. When he refused to elaborate on it, they began to say it was because he did not know. How could the Buddha not know? The point is that such a thing is to be realized by each individual. Those who believe others are said to be, by the Buddha, foolish. He said to listen to things and then contemplate to experience the truth of them. Listen without denying. Receive the words not merely believing, but investigating the meaning. It is not so much a matter of believing or not believing. These are the two extremes. We lean towards either side, but we don't like to stay in the middle. The middle is the lonely way. When there is attraction, we go that way. When there is aversion, we go that way. Putting them down is lonely. We refuse to go there. The Buddha taught that neither extreme is the way of one who is tranquil. We need to be free of pleasure and pain, for neither is the way of peace. Once free of these things, we can be peaceful, thinking, I am so happy. That is not it. That is just happiness for suffering in the future. These are things we have to be wary of. Walking the path, we see the two extremes and keep going. We keep to the middle. You know this path is called the middle path, the middle way. We keep to the middle without desiring them because we want peace, not pleasure or pain. This is the correct path. The practice of Dharma is leading to the point of letting go. But we must have knowledge of things according to the truth 
in order to let go. When real knowledge arises, there will be endurance in the practice of Dharma. There will be enthusiastic, consistent effort. This is called practicing. Once you have gotten to the end, you don't need to use the Dharma. Like a saw that you sharpen to cut wood, once the wood is cut, you put down the saw. You don't need to use it then. The saw is the Dharma. The Dharma is the tool to help you achieve path and freedom. Once we have accomplished this, we put it down. Once the job is done, why would you keep holding the saw? The wood is the wood, the saw is the saw. This is about stopping having reached the essential point, the end of craving and ignorance. The wood is cut. You don't have to cut anymore. You put the saw down. One who will practice must rely on the Dharma. That's someone who is not yet finished. But if the job is done, you don't have to do it anymore. You can naturally let go at that point, not unlike the meditation we did yesterday. With no more attachment and giving meaning to things, there is no need for any more doing. It is the state of peace. End your doubts here. End your doubts and stop. Make an end of it right here, right now. So in ending, another <coughs> uh, few words from Joseph Goldstein. Great knowledge is all-encompassing. Small knowledge is limited. Great words are inspiring. Small words are chatter. When we are awake, our senses open. We get involved with our activities and our minds are distracted. Sometimes we hesitate, sometimes underhanded, and sometimes secretive. Little fears cause anxiety and great fears cause panic. Our words fly off like arrows, though we knew what was right and wrong. We cling to our own point of view as though everything depended on it. And yet, our opinions have no permanence. Like autumn and winter, they gradually pass away. We are caught in the current and cannot return. We are tied up in knots like an old clogged drain. We are getting closer to death with no way to regain our youth. Joy, sorrow and happiness, hope and fear, indecision and strength, humility and willingness, enthusiasm and insolence. Like music sounding from an empty reed or mushrooms rising from the warm dark earth continually appear before us day and night. No one knows from whence they come. Don't worry about it. Let them be. How can we understand it all in one day? Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a moment.
another luxurious poem for you called The Awakening by Sonny Carroll. A time comes in your life when you finally get when in the midst of all your fears and insanity you stop dead in your tracks and somewhere the voice inside your head cries out enough 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 fighting and crying and blaming and struggling to hold on then like a child quieting down after a tantrum you blink back your tears and begin to look at the world through new eyes this is your awakening you realize it's time to stop hoping and waiting for something to change or for happiness, safety, and security to magically appear over the next horizon. You realize that in the real world, there aren't always fairy tale endings and that any guarantee of happily ever after must begin with you. And in the process, a sense of serenity is born of acceptance. You awaken to the fact that you are not perfect and that not everyone will always love, appreciate, or approve of who or what you are, and that's okay. They are entitled to their own views and opinions. You learn the importance of loving and championing yourself, and in the process, a sense of newfound confidence is born of self-approval. You stop complaining and blaming other people for the things they did to you or didn't do for you, and you learn that the only thing you can really count on is the unexpected. You learn that people don't always say what they mean or mean what they say, and that not everyone will always be there for you, and everything isn't always about you. So you learn to stand on your own and to take care of yourself, and in the process, a sense of safety and security is born of self-reliance. You stop judging and pointing fingers, and you begin to accept people as they are and to overlook their shortcomings and human frailties and in the process a sense of peace and contentment is born of forgiveness. You learn to open up to new worlds and different points of view. You begin reassessing and redefining who you are and what you really stand for. You learn the difference between wanting and needing and you begin to discard the doctrines and values you've outgrown or should never have brought into to begin with. You learn that there is power and glory in creating and contributing and you stop maneuvering through life merely as a consumer looking for your next fix. You learn that principles such as honesty and integrity are not the outdated ideals of a bygone era, but the mortar that holds together the foundation upon which you must build a life. You learn that you don't know everything, it's not your job to save the world, and that you can't teach a pig to sing. 
you learn that the only cross to bear is the one you choose to carry and that martyrs get burned at the stake. Then you learn about love. You learn to look at relationships as they really are and not as you would have them be. You learn that alone does not mean lonely. You stop trying to control people, situations, and outcomes. You learn to distinguish between guilt and responsibility and the importance of setting boundaries and learning to say no. You also stop working so hard at putting your feelings aside, smoothing things over, and ignoring your needs. You learn that your body really is your temple. You begin to care for it and treat it with respect. You begin to eat a balanced diet, drinking more water, and take more time to exercise. You learn that being tired fuels doubt fear, and uncertainty, and so you take more time to rest. And just food, just as food fuels the body, laughter fuels our soul. So you take more time to laugh and to play. You learn that for the most part, you get in life what you deserve and that much of life truly is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You learn that anything worth achieving is worth working for and that wishing for something to happen is different than working towards making it happen. More importantly, you learn that in order to achieve success, you need direction, discipline, and perseverance. You learn that no one can do it alone and that it's okay to risk asking for help. You learn the only thing you must truly fear is fear itself. You learn to step right into and through your fears because you know that whatever happens, you can handle it. And to give in to fear is to give away the right to live life on your own terms. You learn to fight for your life and not to squander it, living under a cloud of impending doom. You learn that life isn't always fair you don't always get what you think you deserve, and that sometimes bad things happen to unsuspecting good people. And you lean not to always take it personally. You learn that nobody's punishing you and everything isn't always somebody's fault. It's just life happening. You learn to admit when you are wrong and to build bridges instead of walls. You learn that negative feelings such as anger, envy, and resentment must be understood and redirected or they will suffocate the life out of you and poison the universe that surrounds you. You learn to be thankful and to take comfort in many of the simple things we take for granted, things that millions of people upon this earth can only dream about, a full refrigerator, clean running water, a soft warm bed, a long hot shower. Then you begin to take responsibility for yourself, by yourself, and you make yourself a promise to never betray yourself and to never ever settle for less than your heart's desire.
you make it a point to keep smiling, to keep trusting, and to stay open to every wonderful possibility. You hang a wind chime outside your window so you can listen to the wind. Finally, with courage in your heart, you take a stand, you take a deep breath, and you begin to design the life you want to live as best you can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.